This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the One who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our Gospel for today is a continuation of our reading from last week, from the 16th chapter of Matthew. Last week we heard Peter's confession. Jesus had done a sort of public opinion survey. Who do people say that I am? He got a range of opinions. Then he asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? Is met with silence until Peter confesses accurately, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's upon the rock of that inspired confession that Jesus says, my church shall be built. And it gives the church its stability and its power throughout the ages. Peter the rock. But then we have a very interesting twist. Because just a few lines later in Matthew's Gospel, just a few moments later, Jesus lays out what it means to be the Son of God, what this entails in his public ministry. And of course it means his death. As Son of God, he is the one sent into God-forsakenness to save the world. He's been sent to the cross. Listen now to our gospel for today. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Extraordinary, then. Extraordinary. He's just called them rock. He's just called them the rock upon which he'll build his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is held up higher than anyone else in the New Testament. And then, moments later, he says to that same Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That means stumbling block. You're in my way. Now you're blocking what I'm about. Why does he rebuke Peter? Well, because he doesn't get the cross. Christians, it's always the same story. It's always the same story in the gospel. Those who don't get the cross don't get him. He came that he might give his life as a ransom for the many. He came that he might go into God-forsakenness for our sake. He came that he might die for our salvation. That is the goal of Jesus' life. That is the place where the momentum of his ministry carries him. To get the cross and to love the cross is to get him and to love him. So, having just confessed accurately who Jesus is, Peter reveals he doesn't understand the cross. God forbid, Lord, that that should ever happen to you. 
Now, what's Peter motivated by here? Well, I mean, let's give him the best interpretation. He's probably motivated by a real love for the Lord. Probably a little bit of concern for himself, too. If they're all going to go to Jerusalem and Jesus gets killed, what does that mean for them? But give him the benefit of the doubt. He's concerned about Jesus. And then he hears a terrible rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Peter wants glory for the Son of God. He wants conquest, victory. Not ignominy, not death. That was the last thing on his mind. Remember I said last week that Peter's infallibility, Peter's correctness, the rock quality of his life, has nothing to do with his intelligence, nothing to do with his personal holiness. Well, heck, here you see it purely on display. Peter is, is blocking the Lord. He's a stumbling block. I think you can find this double quality all throughout the gospel. Peter is the great symbol of the church. I've often said, you know, when he gets in the boat with his disciples, with the other disciples, he's a symbol of the church, making its way through the centuries, the bark of Peter. That great story we had a few weeks ago of Jesus walking on the water. And he says to Peter, again, the one who symbolizes the church, come, come, you can walk on the water too. And Peter succeeds as long as he's looking at Christ. But then when he looks away, he sinks. There's the same theme. The duality of Peter, which signals and anticipates Christians the duality of the church across the ages. Will we always have something of Peter's rockiness about us? Yes, yes. It's what's allowed the church to survive and flourish and do its work. And at the same time, will we always have something of Peter's weakness and vacillation? Yes. Do we understand him? We do. We do. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we are those who continue to make that confession. And do we block him? Yes. We're also stumbling block, precisely in the measure that we don't get the cross. Precisely in the measure that we don't get the path of love unto death. That's when we sink. That's when we betray the Lord. That's when we become a Satan. You know, John Paul II, our current Pope, the successor of Peter, I think has brilliantly read the church, interpreted the church through this lens of Peter. I don't know any Pope in history who's been a greater celebrator of the church than John Paul II a greater celebrator of the church in its beauty, its glory, its prerogatives, its power. When the Pope appears in all his liturgical splendor, arrayed like a king, well, he's giving expression to this powerful, spirit-filled, rocky certitude of the Church of Christ. Some people have even criticized the Pope for being too 
triumphalistic. He's too high on the church. But look, no pope in history has at the same time been more frank and more honest about the foibles and the darkness and the sin of the church than John Paul II. In other words, no pope is clearer about the rockiness of Peter and the weakness of Peter, symbolic of the church making its way through the world. Can I give you just a few examples of this? Early on in his papacy, John Paul II appeared at the major synagogue of the city of Rome. Powerful event. There he prayed with the chief rabbi of Rome and with other officials of the Jewish church gathered there. Why was that so powerful? Well, not just because it was an ecumenical gesture. It was that. But in light of the history, Jews have been in Rome from biblical times. So when Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, he's writing largely to Jewish converts in Rome. There have been Jews for a long time. Once the church had consolidated its power in Rome, Jews were, at various times, ostracized, persecuted, killed outright, and for much of that history, placed in ghettos. The Jewish ghetto in Rome, it's a shameful story. Jews crowded and sequestered into this narrow, restricted place. Their lives limited. They could do only a few basic things. They could have very little social intercourse with the rest of the city. Even after the Enlightenment, when most of the Jewish ghettos of Europe had been liberated, it's sad to say, tragic to say, that the ghetto of Rome remained. And it remained precisely because the popes approved of it. We also know that in the 19th century especially, the beginning of the 20th century, there was, in way too much of the church's rhetoric, a sort of anti-Semitism. You'll find it in official statements, you'll find it in journals and newspapers throughout Catholic Europe. Never reaching quite the intensity, the demonic intensity of the Nazi anti-Semitism, but still bad enough. This, of course, stretches back over many centuries. You can find it even in those Gothic cathedrals that I love so much. You can find signs of anti-Semitism in the art and statuary of those cathedrals. There were pogroms and persecutions throughout the Middle Ages. It's against that backdrop that the Pope's visit to the synagogue in Rome was so powerful. And the Pope, on numerous occasions throughout his papacy, has apologized publicly, clearly, for this anti-Semitism. He's apologized to the Jews for the way they've been mistreated by the church over the centuries. Who can forget that poignant scene a couple years ago when the very frail Pope went to the Holy Land? And there he stood before the Wailing Wall. And you know, the custom is to put a, a prayer in one of the crevices of the wall. And the Pope placed in the one of the crevices of the Wailing Wall a prayer asking God for forgiveness for the way the church has treated the Jews over the centuries. And there he stood, and in his very frailty, almost giving symbolic expression to this frailty of the church. 
powerful, rich, strong expression of the weakness, if you will, of Peter. Where else can we see it in his own papacy? The Pope apologized to scientists not many years ago because of the Galileo controversy. When back in the 16th century, the Pope condemned Galileo, silenced him, imprisoned him effectively. And this cast a shadow over the relationship between church and science up to the present day. The fact that the church, which had once been a great patron of the sciences, was seen as the enemy of science. It resulted in many ways from this Galileo controversy. Well, the Pope apologized publicly for that, bemoaned and regretted it. The weakness of Peter, the weakness of the church. Here's a third one. Just very recently, when the Pope went to Greece, there was tremendous opposition to him. Do you remember? Many monks and nuns were actively praying against the visit. They didn't want him to come. Because of the long memory, stretching back many centuries, how the East had been, indeed, terribly abused by the Catholic West, going back now to the era of the Crusades, but many other outrages and insults over the centuries. And so the Eastern Church did not want to receive this patriarch of the West. But the Pope came, nevertheless, despite the critique, and he apologized again publicly for the sins of the church. Well, it made the trip a success. It turned it from a possible disaster into a triumph. Friends, this little phrase, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, the church must always be reformed, that's a good Catholic principle. The church must always be reformed. Yes, it is based upon the rock of Peter's confession, and that strength that rockiness remains throughout the centuries. And at the same time, it bears the mark of Peter's weakness and vacillation. Get thee behind me, Satan. When the church is able to confess, even as it stands on the rock of Peter, able to confess its own weakness, its own sin, it finds itself, I think, then in the healthiest place. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. To purchase copies of the word on fire, call 847-297-4360. That's 847-297-4360.